and the nations. The nations and the nation and the nations. I wrote it, but I didn't practice saying that. So what do you think we're we'll talking about with that today? View one? Oh, I don't see a view on the slide yet. But uh yeah, probably. We'll find out, right? We'll uh we'll all change our minds at the end of the class, right? You okay, Window? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking about the nation of Israel and then the Gentiles. Yeah, and how those relate when it comes to the church. Yep, so the, the church in Israel. So, yeah. How many passages are is there? How many passages in the Bible are there on the church in Israel or that touch on that issue? Well, that touch on it at some point. A lot. Okay, I like that answer. Yeah. Yeah, so today, because it's such a humongous subject, we are just going to introduce it, okay? So you're going to be asking questions. I'll raise more questions than I'll answer, um, because I raise a lot of my own questions that I haven't answered to myself yet. So, uh, But today I have two main goals. I want to introduce just broadly and quickly the two main views, okay, on this whole issue. And then I'm going to give you six, at least my observations, as I've looked through different passages on this subject, okay? And they're just observations. Um, I'm not systematizing a whole lot or not putting a lot of it together yet, okay? So if you want to stump me by asking questions, it's too late. I've already been stumped this week. So, Whose eschatology or whose view of Israel and the church in terms of how you understand it, whose who's looks like this? <laughs> nice, put together. I like it, yeah. Except mine's not together. Yeah, okay. So, that's not mine either, okay? Here's mine. Yeah. The kids have been getting into puzzles lately. They love them. They dove them out all over the floor, and they put them together. They're getting pretty good at it. They don't do that small pieces yet, but uh, they've been enjoying that. But I've thought about it more and more. My, uh, or my, where I'm at in terms of the spectrum or, or my understanding, how much I've studied of it, um, I'm at the puzzle dump level. <laughs> I've dumped all the pieces out, and you know, I've seen a lot of the passages but I'm just not quite sure to put everything together yet. So I want you to join me today in dumping the puzzle pieces. Um, so that's what we're going to do together. That's why it'll raise more questions than it's going to answer today. Okay. That's what we're going to try to do. We're going to look at the two main views and then look at some just broad observations about some of these passages. And I'll need you all to read passages, okay, because I won't be able to talk that much. So. so what are the two basic views? Anyone ever heard of the two basic views? What would they be? They're in the notes. You can look if you need to, but I bet you've heard them before. Okay, yeah, the church has replaced Israel. Wendell? Yeah, replacement theology. Church has replaced Israel. What's the opposite of that? That would be the second view. Sure, yeah. And if you read, the more you read, if, if, as if the, the biblical passages weren't hard enough to systematize and put together and like a puzzle, what's even harder is reading all the different authors. That's even harder. And that's very confusing because you'll find views within views and views within those views, and it keeps on going and going and going until your head really hurts. So 
Oh, we're not going to get into all that today. Who's grateful for that? All right, me too. So you got two broad views, and like I said, you can't peg everyone into one of these two categories every single time, okay? Because I might, might be misrepresenting them, but these are just two broad views, okay? So you're with me on that part? So what are the two basic views? Number one, the church has taken the place of Israel. Who's heard the big word for this before? I like, I might take this view because it's super, right? So. <laughs> yeah, supersessionism. It's a super view. Um, yeah, the church has replaced Israel. What does supersessionism mean? Anyone ever heard that before? Supersede? Yeah, supersede something. Think of seat. You're taking the seat of somebody. Okay? So they're taking the seat. The church has taken the seat of Israel or taken their place. That's, that's the, here's the broad view. And we'll read that. I think I have that in your class notes as well. And this is quoted from Block, which I'm going to recommend you all read. Um, he does not take this position, but he summarizes it well. Okay? This is one of the recommended uh, readers or books for the reading list. But he says this, Supersessionism appears to be based on two core beliefs. Number one, the nation Israel has somehow completed or forfeited its status as the people of God and will never again possess a unique role or function apart from the church. Okay? So Israel has forfeited their place and they're never going to do anything unique or separate from uh, the church at all. And that is any kind of believing Jews. And number two, uh, the church is now the true Israel that has permanently replaced or superseded, taken the seat of national Israel as the people of God. The result is that the church has become the sole inheritor, the sole inheritor of God's covenant blessings, originally promised to national Israel in the Old Testament. And for many supersessionists, this rules out a future restoration of the nation Israel with a unique identity, role, and purpose. So do you see how that, that, that view is working? Does that make sense? Taking the place. So, in other words, national Israel, people with the national Israel can't claim any of those original promises that you guys have been talking about basically all semester. Okay? They can't be claiming those anymore. That's what this view is saying. Unless they're believing Jews inside the church. That's the view. Broadly. And then uh, Vlach says later on, and their desire to emphasize the unity in salvation, they're trying to show the unity in this picture of salvation in the Bible, that Jew, Jews and Gentiles have experienced. Supersessionists have mistakenly concluded that such unity excludes a special role for Israel in the future. Okay, now it's Vlach again. Now here's, here's uh, William Cox. He is uh, an actual representative of the view. Here's what he says. The Old Testament records two kinds of promises which God made to national Israel. National promises and spiritual promises. Okay, so this is a replacement theologian saying that God's given two types of promises to the national Israel, spiritual and, and national promises. The spiritual promises are being fulfilled through the church today. Israel's national promises, listen to this, have either all been fulfilled already, already done, or forfeited, or they let them go, or invalidated because of their unbelief. So do you see where he's coming from there? So, believing Jews, believing Gentiles can participate in national Israel's spiritual blessings. But national Jews have either experienced or forfeited all of those national promises. So they can't be looking forward to land or anything. Okay? Anything like that. Does that make sense? Does that, that make sense? Yeah, um, it's quoting uh, Cox was, uh, I think, on millennialism today. And Ben Ware quoted it. 
been where quoted it. It's William Cox. Yeah, William Cox said that. Benwer quoted him. I didn't have access to that book itself. He quoted it. All right, everyone good with number one there? Not really. I mean, you understand it. Okay, and I don't want to spend all our time there today. Like I said, I want to spend all the time on the views. Uh, View number two, the church has not taken the place of Israel. We call that non-supersessionism. Okay, that part makes sense at least, right? It's not super, right? I'm kidding. Uh, this view, Benware says this, this view concludes that Israel is a unique nation chosen by God to fulfill, that should be uppercase G, to fulfill his will and work in this world. Israel is a specific ethnic group descended from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, which is united by a covenant relationship with the Lord God. This covenant made with Abraham and his descendants is both everlasting and unconditional. Those promises are a covenant everlasting and unconditional, and largely remains unfulfilled with national Israel. So what is the difference just in that little phrase, largely remains unfulfilled as opposed to Cox's either already have been fulfilled or invalidated? See the difference there? So according to the second view, Israel is still looking for the fulfillment of most of those promises, and they are uh, unconditional promises. They have not forfeited them. So Israel is the only nation on earth that has this relationship and status. Again, that's the broad, broad view there. So because God made these promises directly to Israel, according to this view, he won't ultimately leave Israel behind. Okay, So it looks like other people might be winning the race right now. They might be way back at the start, toward the starting line, but God's not going to ultimately leave them behind. So if you think of that analogy, that's the idea for view number two. So that's true even though the church is made up of believing Jews currently and Gentiles, believing Gentiles. Okay, view number two makes sense. I'm not going to ask you to choose which one you hold to right now. Um, Hopefully after you look through the data, you can start to see what side you might be taking, but we'll look through the data. But why is it important to study this? Why is it important to study this? It's a real simple answer I'm thinking of, so don't think too deep. Yeah, I have that written down. It's going to affect your eschatology drastically, dramatically. Yeah, and, and whole camps will divide over this issue. So it depends, you know, you have historic, they have a Jewish millennium, historic dispensationalism, they have a, a Jewish millennium. Other people have a completely non-Jewish millennium. So it's all over the place. So yeah, eschatology is at stake. What else? Hermeneutics. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot this semester. I'd say salvation is at stake. Uh, the Kaiser said this, he says, it's impossible to talk about the biblical doctrine of salvation without seriously involving the Jew-Gentile problem at the very center of that issue. And that's true, because it's constantly brought up. I have uh, two other reasons why we should study it. Number one, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And isn't it neat how you start studying the Bible and you come across topics and start studying things that you either never wanted to study or never thought you'd study? Is that true for some of y'all? Like, I've, or even this issue, I try to avoid it for a while because it's so complex. Like Wendell said, it's a complex issue. Um, but it's there. And secondly, it's in the Bible a lot. Okay? It's in the Bible a lot. What percentage of this is Old Testament?
78% approximately. 78% is, is Old Testament. Who is the Old Testament written to? Kind of a trick question, but yeah, it was, it was written in the Jewish context and by, by Jewish people, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Jewish community. Would you say the Old Testament is a Jewish book? Yes. <laughs> Some people call it the Jewish scriptures, okay? The Jewish scriptures might even be a misnomer because what about the New Testament? This is a much smaller part of the Bible, but is that very Jewish? Sure. What about Matthew, Mark, Luke, those guys? Uh, Paul, what about him? He wrote just a few books in the New Testament, so we won't consider him. Wait, no, he wrote a lot. So what, so what about the New Testament? I've never heard anyone appeal to that. I've never wanted to have an appeal to that. But, um, so yeah, we, we have a lot of things. And then you, you can't get around the books of the Bible without these books bringing up this issue, okay, in some form or fashion. Some of them hit it directly. Some of them hit it by application, don't they? So I, I, the more I've studied, the more I try to stay out of the issue, I have not been able to avoid it. I have not been able to avoid it. So that's why this past week... Mike asked me, he's like, hey, I'm going to be in Myanmar. Can you do those two classes I was playing? I was like, oh, great. Um, so I kind of was forced to study it more, okay? Forced to study it. But I'm glad I did, okay? And again, I dumped the puzzle pieces out. I was going to show the, the people who came in. Whose eschatology looks like that, their view? Tim, does yours look like that? Most of us agreed they look like this. Yeah. So We talked about the two views, too. Yes, yeah, so it's very important, and also say up front um, some of the key words for nations in the Bible. And Hebrew has heard of the Hebrew word for nations. If you hang out with Jewish people at all, you might hear it or hear it on reading in books or movies or something. Goyim. Yeah, goyim, goyim, plural for nations. Yeah, and in the New Testament you have ethne, ethnos. Okay, like ethnic nations. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's the idea. So it's Gentile is just another translation for that, it, but it just means nations. Okay, and that's why we have the nation and the nations because you have the nation of Israel and the surrounding nations, the Gentiles. Okay, that's what we're getting at there, the peoples or the families of the earth. It's different words for that, but same idea. Okay, so the, the, we'll refer back to those kind of terms. Okay, so we looked at the two basic views. We're clear on those at least. Might be a little confusing, but pretty basic, all right? Pretty basic. Uh-oh, what's all that? HP updates. We must restart your computer now, you know. Um, initial observations. And again, I'm not going to put all the pieces together. These are just some very initial observations that I've made. These are not really all that controversial, okay? You say, well, you copped out. But these are not. These are a lot of these are agreed upon. Some even, some replacement theologians will agree with even point number six that we'll make. And you can see that in your notes. Some outright reject it, okay? But these are just initial observations, okay? Some of you have heard, some of you may have not. All right, moving on. What is a missionary? Is it this? Can be, yeah, sure. Usual, you know, tucked in shirt, now in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I might t untuck my shirt if I was out there, but... Um. <laughs> But anyway, so yeah, he can be a missionary. I'm not going to doubt that. Missionaries can be a lot of, uh, take a lot of different forms. Um, 
Have you ever thought of these people as missionaries? Who are these people? Idolaters? Yeah. What, who, what, what idolaters? That's a golden calf, and which what means who, who are the people there? Have you ever thought of them as missionaries? They, do they look like missionaries right now? Looks like they might have went to those other places and started doing what you know the other people were doing, but not being missionaries. Have you ever thought of them as missionaries? God wanted them to be missionaries. Yeah. There's our first observation. Observation one: Yahweh planned to save Gentiles all along. It's not a secret. Okay. That's why this is not. This isn't even a controversial point. It's a neglected point. But Yahweh planned to save Gentiles. He planned to save the nations all along. Okay. He planned to save them all along. We'll look at some passages. And there's a lot of passages on this. And hopefully we have time to, to work through some of these. This is, in my opinion, could be one of the most important points in this whole topic. It doesn't get mentioned a lot, but it's very important. Um, I'll recommend this book, too. It's in your notes. Uh, Mission in the Old Testament, Walter Kaiser. I really like Kaiser's work. And Brad, kind of answering your question last week, he seems to be you know, going purging these without a bias, as far as I can tell. I mean, he has his own view, obviously, but I really like the way he handles passages because he doesn't try to twist them however he wants, you know. So, Walter Kaiser. But Genesis 12.3, anyone ever thought of that as a missionary text? Hmm. And I will bless those who bless you. Who's talking to who here? Abraham, yep. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, only the nation Israel will be blessed. What does it say? All the families. Yeah, and they use the word. It's related to nations, but families here. And you can look at Psalms 22 and 96 in relation to that. Um, yes, maybe it's, it could be a missionary text. What about Solomon? He, he ever talked about anything like this? Maybe when he was dedicating the temple in his prayer, 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43, says also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, this is Solomon praying, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes, when this foreigner comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls you to do or calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, to fear you, as do your people Israel. Interesting, really interesting. And that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. So a clear distinction between the uh, nation of Israel and the nation, or, and the, the peoples around them. But these people coming and being part. Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. Anyone want to read that? Great. And actually, it's while someone's reading that, someone look up Isaiah 42.6 and another person, Isaiah 49.6. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hand, Israel, my inheritance. Interesting. Still maintaining a distinction, but still calling him his people. Interesting. 
isn't it good just to look at the Bible, what the Bible says about this? Um, and you'll even get more clarification as we go. Isaiah 42, 6. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'll read that and someone read 49, 6. I am the Lord, Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Call on Israel to be a light to the nations. Interesting. 49 6. He says it is too small a thing that he should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And someone look up Isaiah 60 1 through 3. I'll read 56 here. Also the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants, we're talking about foreigners here, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. You might have heard that phrase before, huh? The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to him, mm, to them, to those already gathered. Cool stuff. All right, and we got Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. Okay, is this clear so far? You see kind of where it's, where it's going. You still might have some questions, but at least the basic premise, is it, is it clear? Okay, it's, it's, it's really neat stuff to discover as you go along. Zechariah, Mr. Uh, the Gosselin's favorite book of the Bible. Uh, Zechariah 2.11. Nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Okay, so we started at the beginning of the Bible, didn't we? And now we're at the end of the Old Testament. Did anything change when you get to the New Testament in terms of God's purpose? Yahweh planning to save the nations? Anything change? I'd suggest no. John 10, 16. Feel free to read. Who's speaking to whom? Yeah. And that's the part where, you know, no one's going to take them out of the Father's hand, that kind of passage. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I'm going to go get them. Pretty cool stuff. Okay, Jesus dies, is buried, he rises again. Anything change? Anything change in terms of God's purpose? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Anyone know that verse or those passages? That passage?
Yeah, so who do you want us to make disciples of or go out and make disciples? Or all the nations. Clear. Acts 1 8. even to the remotest part of the earth, starting in Jerusalem. Is statements like Paul's, you know, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, those kind of statements, are those starting to come a little bit clearer in your mind based on all this context? Sure. Um, Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Acts. Well, that's a little different. <laughs> Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where James is making his uh, judgment on the situation where the Judaizers came in and said, hey, Unless these Gentiles, unless they're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they can't be saved. And uh, so here's the Jews, you know, putting the stronghold on these Gentiles coming in and saying, hey, they have to do certain things. They can't just do this faith thing. That's not going to work. You have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Or they, they can't have the salvation. But what is, what's James' judgment? What does James appeal to? Yeah, he, yeah, Amos. Yeah, he appeals to uh, something immediate. Who was that? What's the first word of the uh, of the passage there? Simeon, Simeon or Simon? Who who is who? Or which is Peter? Yeah. What happened to Peter? Acts chapter ten. Yeah, the sheep. Yeah, and all the unclean animals, kill and eat. Hey, nothing ever, unclean's ever touched my mouth. I'm not doing all this. But he ends up going and witnessing to these Gentiles, and they become believers, you know, these first Gentile converts. Um, so James is saying, hey, well, Simon, Simon, he said this happened, and it agreed with the prophets. And then James goes back and appeals to the Old Testament prophet, Amos, doesn't he? Okay, saying this is, this is, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Okay, we shouldn't be making it hard for them. And did Israel make it hard all along? They made it impossible, right? <laughs> what about Jonah? He was a prophet. Who did God tell Jonah to go speak to? Nineveh. Nineveh. What did he do? He ran away, he got there, and did his job, but then he got angry still. So even the prophets, and I'm not saying I would have done anything different, okay? But you see throughout their history what they've been doing, okay? And you could also look at Romans 9.25 and 1 Peter and Hosea 2, but we'll keep moving. But you see the spread of the gospel in Acts this way. Now you can't see it. It's too small. But you have Acts 1.8. And then chapters uh, 2 through 7, you have the gospel spreading through Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12, you have it spreading through all Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said. And then 13 through 28, spreading through the remotest part of the earth. Okay, and there's the verses next to it that you can't see. But I didn't put it in your notes, did I? That graph. You'll be okay with that. I think it makes sense. So there we go. And Kaiser also said this. He said, from the beginning, God intended that all the remnant of humanity, he's not talking about universalism, he's talking about the nations, would share in the spiritual benefits that would be offered through Israel. Okay, so that's what he's saying. From the beginning, we shouldn't be surprised. And Benware says this, which uh, that's also a text that Mike recommended, Paul Benware. Israel's position as God's elect nation 
was never intended to isolate the blessings of God to Israel. But rather, Israel was to be the channel of God's blessing and salvation to all nations of the earth. That was, that was what God intended from the very beginning. Okay? So that's our first observation. Yahweh planned to save Gentiles all along. No surprise. Okay, that might go without saying, but you see how significant this could be for the discussion as you start to build your view of, the, of this issue? It's pretty neat stuff, too. It offers a lot of hope to us, doesn't it? I don't know if there's any ethnic Jews in the room or not. So, yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Although my last name is Samic, which is a Hebrew letter. But it's also an Arabic word that means fish, I've heard. So I don't know. I don't know what I am. Okay, observation number two. So again, we're not doing, getting very deep, are we? National Israel really did blow it, <laughs> okay? That's observation number two. Any uh, quarrels with that? Anyone disagree? I was just trying to figure out, I'm trying to harmonize like Ephesians 3. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't want to get spend too, a whole bunch of time on that. Um, let me look at it really quick. So we will get to Ephesians two, but not it won't answer that exact question. But it, um, or Ephesians two, yeah, we'll talk about Ephesians two. Um, I think I think what's getting at is uh, the mystery is the extent to which the mystery. Um, was being currently known at the New Testament era. I think it's the idea. I used to, I used to have that. I heard that recently as a good explanation. I want to say that more myself, though. Yeah, because it was something that um, should have been clear. Should have been clear. Um, and maybe you could link it to the blindness of Israel too, where they were blind. And if we haven't already, we will read some passages. I think we will in a moment where they're blind to those things. Or they, Isaiah the prophet coming to preach and. Ears couldn't hear, eyes couldn't see, that kind of thing. So, anyone else have anything on that with the mystery? Anyone thought about the mystery? All right. Guess it's settled then. Yeah, I, I, I did. I read a really good quote on that, Jim. I just can't remember the wording of it right now. This recently. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. I can't. I can't expect to keep all this in my head. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sorry, never mind. Um, national Israel really did blow it, okay? We'll look at a couple passages here. And this is uh, Jesus in Matthew 21, 43. Jesus rebuking Israelites. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God, and here it gets stuff. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Easy verse, right? Who likes that verse? <laughs> so, yeah, I cherish that verse. Studied every morning. That's a tough verse. But at least my observation, I'll, I'll suggest to you, I'll, I'll try to put it in context that I think the, the, the New Testament does too. Um, in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Nice description, huh? Hey, you got preachers coming, but you stone them. You kill them. How often I wanted to gather your children together. And that's Old Testament imagery. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. 
Did Israel blow it? Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Not looking good for Israel, is it? Not looking good. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? And this is after the triumphal entry. All right? Did Israel blow it? Romans 11, 7 through 10. Anyone want to, want to read that? Romans 11, 7 through 10. Okay, thank you. So, they were hardened. God gave them the spirit of stupor. Ears couldn't see. Become a snare and a trap. Not looking good for Israel, is it? So you can see the picture here. You've already seen that they failed in their missionary purpose through the whole entire Old Testament. Okay? And you see them failing still here in the New Testament. Okay, so that's the picture you see. So that's where we get to observation number three. What is that? Olive tree. Olive tree. Yep. Uh, I can't get into all the theology of the olive tree. Um, you can definitely do your reading there. But observation number three is that Israel's failure opened up the door wide. Okay, for the salvation of many Gentiles. Okay, Israel's failure opened up that door. Boom, and Gentiles flooding in, as this room illustrates, doesn't it? Full of Gentiles. As Michael said, pig-eating pig Gentiles, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, Luke 21, 24. Anyone want to read Luke 21, 24? Talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and things like that. trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, so starting to see some of the pieces come together, aren't we? Uh, Romans 11, 25 through 27, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery, here that mystery again, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a complete final hardening has happened to Israel because they forfeited their status as God's people. Now the Gentiles are coming in and... Won't let Israel back in. That's the NASB. What are you guys reading? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> to be uninformed of this mystery so that you won't be wise in your estimation that a partial hardening, a partial hardening of Israel has come in. Okay, partial. Does partial mean partial? <coughs> sure. It's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we'll read verse 26 later. Okay. So you can see how the door is open wide for Gentiles to come into the church. And that's what you see in the New Testament, the picture of the missionary efforts in the New Testament. That's what you see, isn't it? You do see, Gentile, you do see Jews coming to Christ, don't you? You see a ton of Gentiles coming to Christ, don't you? Yeah, you definitely do. So that, that's the picture here. 
Observation number three. What about number four? Israel and the church had different starting points. Is this point controversial? <laughs> Someone laughed. Yeah, it's true. This one's controversial. Okay. This one's controversial. And even with the two views, you can't necessarily put this one in definitely in one of the two views. Some people kind of take it either way, take it with them to either view. But this observation, I think, will come clear, is that Israel and the church should have different starting points. Okay? Different starting points. There may be someone in this room, in this very room, who disagree. Um, he smiles. The church is not found in the Old Testament. What do you think of that? Yeah, go for it. The church. Okay. Anyone want to offer a definition of the church? Yeah. I'd say it's a believing and it's being in Christ and being his people. Yeah. God's people. And it's about and it's Christocentric or Christ centered, being in Christ. Okay. Yeah, I would say it's the same faith. Yes. Yeah, still, it's still, and we'll talk about, if we have time, some similarities, okay? Because I don't, I don't think, which, by the way, people accuse historic dispensationalists of seeing salvation by works in the Old Testament and then salvation by faith in the New Testament. I think that's an accusation. I don't think that's an accurate thing. I don't think that, like it was a Schofield, he had an ambiguous note that people accused him of that. So I think it's still the same faith, yes, yeah. And what we're, getting, what we're going to end up getting to is the ethnic distinctions within the church. I think that's going to be the kicker. Does that answer your question, at least at this point? Okay. So, yeah, the, there was not, the church was not in the Old Testament. What do people say that, uh, why do people say that the church was in the Old Testament? Anyone ever heard this before? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, continuation would be a key word there. And that's why I said there's different sub-views, and we're not going to get into all those, but yeah, continuation. And it's just, boom, kept on. It's almost seamless, okay? Almost seamless. But yeah, that'd be the idea. And they appeal, they say, um, that the word for congregation in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, when you have the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use same word we use for church, okay? So they plug it back in and import all the meanings of the church into that Septuagint translation. That's what they, they do. Um, so see, that's why I recommended to pull out those notes that I put it online because he does, I think, a you know, good job, a really brief, um, kind of showing why that idea is not correct, okay? I might have thrown a few things in here. No, I didn't put them in here. But yeah, I would recommend pulling that article out showing why the term congregation in the Old Testament doesn't refer to New Testament church. Okay, so that would be the distinction there. Steve? Yes, or covenant. That's why I say there's sub-views, but that would be probably more particularly covenant or millennialism. Okay, that, like that particular view, or just a pure continuation. Okay, sometimes historic pre-mills will be pure replacement theologians. Where it's a brand new entity replaced Israel. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I am too. I told you. Well, the church yeah. is Christian, like post Christ. Is that what we're getting 
Are we saying that the church is only Christians? Yeah, I mean, we're saying that. It's, comp it's composed of Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. But is it composed of Jews pre-Christ that believed on the hope of Christ's coming, the Messiah? Um, they weren't participating in it physically because they weren't alive when the actual church started. Okay, uh, let me think about that for a second. Um, like Abraham wasn't around, but he's still appealed to as a man of faith. Um, um, Enoch and those guys were still appealed to as people of faith, but not participating in the actual inauguration of the New Testament church. Does that clear it up yet? Uh, I don't know. And this is, this is, this is a, uh, a Kaiser. What he says is that one people of God throughout both the Old and New Testament said the church is composed, it's different from Israel in that it's composed of Jews and Gentiles, but it's not the same as the Old Testament people of God in that sense because it, it is uh, finally where God wanted it to be was uh, multi-ethnic. Um, so we're saying believing Jews pre-Christ are not part of the church? Is that what we're saying? Yes, basically, yeah. I mean, if you want to argue they're participating in a heavenly sense, What's that? Yeah. Yeah, some, some people talk about the church on earth and heaven. <laughs> um, if you went that direction, you say they're participating in a heavenly sense. But, but would believing Jews in the Old Testament not be in the church? I think, well, we're going we're to get into huge difference. <laughs> I, I think the Holy Spirit operated he, yeah, in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that would, that would be a distinction of the New Testament church and that the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, hey, when I, when I go, I'm going to send the helper. Okay, he's going to come and he'll be with you forever. And then you have the, the temple, um, which the temple growing because of the Holy Spirit of believers in the New Testament growing into the Holy Temple of the Lord. Okay, um, so yeah, when the Holy Spirit's coming down after Christ comes back um, or permanently indwelling his church, I think that's going to be a big distinction between Old Testament Israel and all types of saints, yeah. But yeah, when it comes to salvation, you know, exercise the same faith. And they didn't do it by works, um, as it says about uh, Paul in Romans 4. So, yeah. Um, and then that, that's where we're getting to the big issue of how you systematize all this information. Yeah. And just a quick, we got to move on, but a quick example of a, bringing up the Holy Spirit in particular, um, King Saul. Holy Spirit would empowered him to do his work, but it did depart, and he sent an evil spirit. Do you see that in the New Testament? Mm -mm. No, you, you can say no to that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a big no. Um, it's a permanent indwelling. So the, roles, the role that he was doing was a little different back then. And I'll, you say that sounds crazy, but all we can do is base it on the, the, what we see in the Old Testament. You don't see the permanent indwelling like that. You see him coming for special functions. Um, even Bezalel, I think, for doing tabernacle work, things like that, special functions. Did he know Saul, David? 
I mean, who saw? Yeah. So yeah, those are realities. Yeah. We can only base it on what those passages that we know. Mr. Bob. Yeah. So that aspect of the separation of God can do the work in his lifetime, but then the church being established after he left will directly function in his work. I mean, so I think there's that element of unique, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, time that uh, we see in the church being established by Christ, but your time here on earth may not be. Yeah, like words, like even like the word until kind of shows you a time frame. Um, I think when you start to look at Ephesians 2, it's going to make things more confusing, but I think it'll answer the question about the newness of the church. Okay, and we'll get to that in a second. All right? So let's, let's keep moving here. And a couple other passages will, will help talk about the newness of the church. Okay? And show us the, probably the big distinction between the New Testament church and Old Testament Israel. Okay. So we, wow. So observation number one, we read the first clause. And that's where we, we're coming back to that first class. <laughs> we didn't get to the, the whole sentence. Maybe I should have read that rest of the sentence and I could have answered the question. But uh, the church is not found in, Old Test- in the Old Testament and is yet future in the teaching of Christ. It's future from the standpoint of Christ's teaching uh, during his earthly ministry. Okay? I just heard someone singing a song or something. I didn't know the song, but singing the words, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus speaking to Peter, he said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build, you guys from the Roman Catholic background, that's the Pope, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will build my church, I, and that's a clear future tense. I will do it. I will do it. So, Jesus knew it was going to happen. He knew the church was going to be built. He knew he was going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who would be with them forever. So it's already pointing to the future or the immediate future, and therefore you'll see the newness of the New Testament church. Okay. And uh, another thing we can, uh, another maybe distinction we say is that the church is dependent upon the finished work of Christ. And this is from Soci. It's in the uh, recommended reading. Without the death and resurrection of Christ, there'd be no church. And you have Acts 20, 28, and this is an implication from this passage, okay? Be on your guard for yourselves, and here's Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. Be on guard for, your, on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So talking about an entity that was purchased through the cross work of Christ, okay? So again, that's implying the newness, all right? And another thing we could say about this is that believing Gentiles are not becoming part of an existing entity. They, along with believing Jews, compose a new entity. And this is hopefully, is this answering your question at all, Joy? Is it starting to? Maybe Ephesians, like I said, when we get to Ephesians 2, I think it's going to make you answer, ask more questions, but this might answer, this might answer your particular question, Okay. Okay, this passage is going to show us a few things here. Ephesians 2. I'm already there. What do you know? Uh, 
Therefore, remember that you formerly the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time, listen to what they were, at that time they were separate from Christ, they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, they were strangers to the covenants of promise, they had no hope, and were without God in the world. So that's describing the Gentiles in the flesh. Two words at the beginning of verse 13. But now. Sounds like Ephesians 2 earlier, doesn't it? Same context, isn't it? But God being rich in mercy. Same context here. But, God, or, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. I think it's talking about the Mosaic law. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having, built, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Big, humongous passage. And this is where most of the debate centers, okay? So if you, this is probably going to make you ask questions that I, I really can't answer probably today, okay? But I do want to focus on some of the things that are clear here. In verse 15, I emphasized it in the reading. He, God made, or Christ made, what into what? The two into what? Into one. And how does it qualify man? New man, okay? So I think we're talking about the newness here, okay? The newness here. Did God plan all along for Gentiles to be included? That's clear. Yes. Were they? Was that all fulfilled pre-Christ? No. So here, Christ comes, the church starts, and that's where I think you see this distinction between the Old Testament Israel and then the New Testament church. Okay? So a new man. How do we know it's new? Well, it says it's new, right? What is it built on? What is it built on? If you challenge that, well, maybe it's not quite new. Awesome, yes. Foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The Old Testament prophets, right? Uh, yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> what about 3.5? Ephesians 3.5. You want to read that? New Testament apostles and prophets or Old Testament apostles and prophets? <clears throat> New. Well, you don't believe that? Okay. Well, you might believe it. Ephesians 4.11. Christ, he, uh, we'll back it up just a tiny bit, but Christ, um, he ascended on high, led a host of captives, gave gifts to men. Okay, he's so talking about the work of Christ. And then, what did he give? What did he give? Verse 11. Yes, so this is something that New Testament apostles and prophets, okay? 
for establishing this, this ministry of the, the spread of the gospel. Okay? So I think this is, in my, in my opinion, it's at least it's clear in my mind, this point is clear in my mind, that this is a new entity okay? because it's based on new uh, people okay? or these new positions. Not that there weren't ever prophets before, but these New Testament apostles and prophets. Um, and it's being built on that with Christ Jesus himself being the very cornerstone. Jesus said in Matthew 16 he was going to build his church. Okay, he was going to build his church. Jimmy? I'm just trying to wrap up the, uh, the Ephesians 2. Um, I don't know if ever, anyone's ever wrapped it up, but you can try. <laughs> it just says, Now you are therefore no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. So if we're fellow citizens with the saints, who are yeah. the saints, you know? Okay, yeah. Yeah, we we I'll just be honest. We can't get into that today because there's a debate. Some people say it's Old Testament saints. Some people say it's New Testament saints. We really couldn't get into that today. Yeah, but that's what I mean. This is going to make you ask probably more questions than that. That's one of the big questions, and there's going to be a host of other ones coming after that. The more you read Ephesians two, I tried to read it more, and I think that only made me ask more questions because it's plagued me for years now. To be honest, Ephesians two. Okay, but like the ones the points we did mention, I think are clear. The newness of the entity. Uh, the newness of the apostles and prophets that Christ gave to the church. Okay, so it's establishing the newness. I also don't like to make a humongous distinction. This might answer your question too. Between the peoples of God, say there's just two completely, entirely different peoples of God, no similarities at all. I don't. I don't try to go that far. Okay, I try to keep them as close as I can because I think the Bible keeps them pretty close. Okay, okay. All right, where are we at? Where are we at? Everyone okay? Yeah. Anyway, this, this really, it really got me this week. I, I really do feel your pain. I, it might be a little bit different subject or a different question, but it, it was painful for me, okay? Yeah. Oh, we got to go. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So only when the Spirit came to dwell within the believers was the church formed as the temple of God. Okay, and you can see that in verses 21 through 22. So when the Spirit came... Um, they're now being formed into a temple of God, okay? And that's going to make you ask questions about Old Testament temples, isn't it? I'm not going to answer those. <laughs> um, puzzle pieces, right? Are we dumping them? Yeah. That's why I told Mike, I was like, hey, you sure you want <laughs> Like, I'll do it, but I don't know if you call it teaching. <laughs> Ephesians 2 through 3, and this is important, Ephesians 2 through 3 emphasizes the sharing with Israel and not an incorporation into Israel. Okay, I think that's also important because if you read... Or a replacement, yeah. And there's no, word, there's no replacement word in here, is there? This is one of the big texts that the replacement theologians go to to say the church has replaced Israel. But there's no replacement terms. There's only with terms, isn't there? And again, that's why I don't try to make a humongous distinction between the people of God, okay? I don't like to do that because there's a lot of with terms, like with, with, shares, with, with, over and over again, okay? And there's a... Um, you could read through that study. If you picked out an interlinear, you could find that thing out. Okay, I would maybe use an interlinear, even though I tell those guys never to use them. But um, the with, okay, not an incorporation into. Okay, there's a real strong emphasis on the preposition with in Ephesians two and three. Okay. All right. So that was number four. They had different starting points. And again, this one, that one is contested. Okay, that one is contested back and forth between the two views. That's a big point, okay? And that might be where Joy's feeling the pain right now because it's a humongous debate, okay? 
And I'm not saying it very clearly either, so that's not helping. But observation number five. Okay, here we go again. The, the terms church and Israel don't mean the same thing in the Bible. Okay, and we can't go into this in depth, but um, I like the way uh, Robert Sosi brought out some distinctions here. Where, and here's what he's getting at. I'll try to keep it simple. When he's talking about Israel, he's talking about something national. Okay, and when he's talking about church and the New Testament, he's talking about this composition of, of believers from all nations. Okay, who are in Christ. Okay, I think that's what he's getting at. So Israel, as it's referred to in the New Testament, may be talking about unbelievers. And it's always going to be talking about national Israel. Okay, national Israel. So I think that's going to be your key distinction here. And he brings out some really good points for that. But here's a quote from him. He says, uh, do I have that quote on there? I tried to leave as many quotes as I could. So you'd have them. But he says, the New Testament never confuses Israel and the church. Would anyone disagree with him? Any other commentators or people you've read, people you've talked to across at Starbucks? Yeah, they disagree with him here. Uh, which I never debated anyone at Starbucks, but I know some people do usually. I've never been to Starbucks. <laughs> As opposed to the church, which is a religious body composed of individuals from all nations. So you hear that? The church is a religious body it's composed of people from all nations. All right? So it's not talking about a national identity. It's talking about a religious identity, even though the religious is not the greatest word. But the term Israel retains its reference to that people which came physically from the loins of Abraham. After the beginning of the church, Israel is still addressed in the New Testament as a national entity. Okay? And again, this is contested between the views, but I think, he's right. I think he's right here. And he shows some samplings of Israel and how those are clear references to national Israel. Okay, so bring up the word Israel, New Testament. It's a clear reference to national. And here's, here's some. You can see a string of references, but it talks about men of Israel addressing a crowd. Okay? And he's not talking about the church there either. He's talking about preaching to a group of Israelites. So that's a clear national reference in several passages in Acts. In the next four, he refers to nationally, not religiously. He says, you know, the people of Israel, okay? Acts 4.10. talks about the sons of Israel. And you need to look these up in their context to, uh, to confirm what I'm saying, because we don't have time to go through all the contexts today. But those are national contexts, okay? We're talking about a national identity, a national people. And then talks about repentance to Israel as well. And again, a national context in Acts 5, which also makes sense because you don't have Gentiles being converted until when? Acts chapter 10. Yeah, 10. There you go. Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh are Israelites. There's another one. Paul, was Paul a Jew? You better believe it. Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Jew. So there's another reference to Israelites identified specifically as a national people. Okay, Paul saying, hey, these are my, these are my kinfolk, my, my fellow Israelites, all right, according to the flesh. All right, national identity in Romans 9. Paul prays for their salvation, those people he mentioned, okay? So the national identity. And uh, Romans 11 talks about his people. For I, Paul, too, he said, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of a tribe of Benjamin. And then there's also groupings that you could mention, but one in 1 Corinthians 10, 32, talks about Jews, Greek, and the church of God. Okay, so you see... What, what all he's trying to do here is if you look up Israel in a concordance, especially look to the New Testament, look up Israel, you're going to see that those are national references, okay, to a national identity. Does that make sense? And it's not going to be some mystical identity, okay? 
there are a few passages, Galatians 6, and some people dispute Romans 9, where they say that's not talking about national, but that's a humongous debate. Again, are we going to do that today? Is a question? Uh oh. <laughs> Whenever someone starts, the question was so. Usually you should run. <laughs> Ah, see? <laughs> okay, that's where we're not going to systematize all of that today. Um, we could refer to all the different views. Okay, and I, 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 and I, I will not answer that today. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to, I'm going to give a strong hint, though, if you bear with me just for just a minute. Does that clarify your question, though? Does that clarify your question? It does clarify your question, at least. So it might not get answered, but it does clarify, at least. Okay. Yeah, we will hint on it. I'll give you a strong hint as we look through. Again, these are just initial observations, okay? I think so. I think so. I think so. I think I know it. But let's, let's keep looking. Again, you, you see what we're trying to do here today? We're trying to be as objective as possible, aren't we? I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not doing a very good job at, job at it, but I just want to look at all the passages, not all the passages, some important passages, and see how it informs our thinking. Do you see what we're trying to accomplish, though, with that? Okay. Yeah. When Mike comes, that's why that's why I set this up not not quite on purpose, but like let's let's list a hundred passages you can all be thinking about for two weeks and then ask Mike. <laughs> hey Mike, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's that? Oh. Well maybe then that's here's another reason why I'm doing this. I'm trying to get you as many passages possible so that you can start forming conclusions that are clear from the text. So you can see that, hey, you can be a theologian too. Okay, this is another thing we're trying to do. Um, that's why you're eyes that everyone's a theologian, right? Okay, so what we tried to establish with point number five is that New Testament references to the word Israel retain a national identity or retain a national reference. That's what we're trying to establish with point number five there. Does that part make sense at least? Again, there, would be, there are a few passages that people really hotly debate. Right, Tim? Galatians 6. Okay, I'm not going to do it today. Um, yeah, you're right, Chuck. Uh, <clears throat> okay, we'll jump to number six because we're running out of time. Six, and finally, the big kicker. Okay, God still has a plan for national Israel. Any problem with that now after everything we said? You have Israel supposed to, or God was planning to save Gentiles all along, right? Israel blew it, okay? And then their failure led to some Gentiles, a lot of Gentiles being included, right? And then you have the church in Israel with different starting points. One is back there with at least Abraham, and then one happening, boom, cross work of Christ, spirit coming, and you have the establishment of the New Testament church. So we've seen all that. So this is going to help you evaluate your question, Joy, and everyone's question. My question that I, I I'm struggling with the most. Okay, so I'm I'm in seminary. They expect you to have all your answers ready to go. This is the big one that I do not have ready. Okay, but I do I want to show you the data or the information. Uh, observation number six. God still has a plan for national Israel. Uh, we don't have to read it, but you know you're familiar with the uh, Abrahamic covenant, at least one of the passages from Genesis 15, where there's um, God passes through the uh, all those cut up animals. 
Pretty gruesome scene, right? Um, establishing this covenant with Abraham. What's Abraham doing during this process? Sleeping. <laughs> Pretty uh, conditional covenant, right? He, he's not unconditional. Um, so here's how uh, Kaiser brings this out. He says, In the isle set up by Abraham, or Abram, God by himself walked between the pieces as a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, thereby taking an oath on himself alone that if he himself did not keep what he was now promising, especially about the land, excuse me, he would become just like the animals he passed between. He would become dead. Okay, so he's going to keep his promise. That's what he's trying to say. He's going to keep the promise. Everything he mentioned in that promise is going to keep. Okay, unconditional. All right, so we're going to look at a few more passages here that I believe really clearly show a national future, or future for national Israel. Okay. Jeremiah 31, 33-34. Anyone want to read that? What covenant is that? Yeah. Okay, 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Yeah, so who's he addressing? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, so that's, that's who he's addressing. Okay, So if you're a placement theologian, this is why you can have Israel, these people he addressed, as forfeited of these kind of things. Okay, or Forfeiting or, or letting them go. Okay, And giving them to a kingdom that is going to produce its fruit. So that, we're not taking that position though. Okay? But that's who it's addressed to. All right, And if you keep reading in 35... Through 37, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it waves and roars, or so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. So if this, if this fixed order, those things that I just said I do, those powerful things that I do, if this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, which that's a conditional statement, right? But is that going to happen? Is that going to depart from him? It's rhetorical. No, no way. It's not going to happen. It's not going to depart from him. Then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. So, in other words, if God loses his power <laughs> over those elements of nature, then Israel is going to cease to be a nation. Is that going to happen? Is God going to lose that fixed order? No. And then it says, <clears throat> uh, verse 37, Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, can we do that? Okay, we can't, we can't measure the heavens above. And can we search out the foundations of the earth below? The, answer, the implication is no. Then, if we can do those things, I will cast off all the offspring of Israel. If you can do that, then I'll cast off the offspring of Israel. <clears throat> For all that they have done, declares the Lord. All that they have done, is that a good or a bad thing? Yeah, again, they blew it. We talked about how they blew it. 
but is God letting him go in spite of that? He's saying, hey, I'm in charge, and I've set up this covenant, and it's unconditional. Okay, it's unconditional. Does he have a plan for, the nation, for national Israel? As, or Ezekiel 37, 25 through 28. Again, a lot of passages, but you can do much better with these passages than with me talking. Ezekiel 37, 25. Someone want to read that? 25 through 28. Okay, you could search that context for quite a while. I don't think you're going to find any conditions, will you? You could try. If you find a condition in that passage somewhere, let me know. But he's saying it's going to happen, okay? He's saying it's something that's going to happen. And he's talking to Jacob, my servant, okay? Specifying it there in forever terminology, okay? Not temporary terminology, all right? So based on that, you can see those, those clear passages, which I believe are clear. You can see that God has a plan for Israel as a nation, you could also appeal to the storyline of the Old Testament. Who's, uh, who does God keep preserving throughout the whole Old Testament? I mean, where do you see it start? Where do you see this preservation start? How far back? That's what I'm thinking. You might be go farther back, um, think of uh, different things. But, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, saving the human race that way. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Isaac. What if, what if Abraham would have actually killed Isaac? Well, you still have Ishmael, right? What did God say about Ishmael? Is he going to work? No, God says, Isaac, I want Isaac. He's going to be who, through the person through whom your descendants will be called. Isaac. He preserved Isaac, didn't he? Did he preserve Israel? Those special people who were uh, really pleasant, always were grateful. They did their devotions every morning, probably read from our daily bread. Um, all throughout those wilderness wanderings, he take care of those people. Shoes ever wear out, that kind of thing. Ever go hungry? Nah, took care of them too. Story of Joseph, rewind a little bit. Story of Joseph. What about that famine? That famine mean anything? Did, uh, did Joseph's dad and brothers, did they have much food? Well, pretty bad story with Joseph, right, in his start. What about the end of that story? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for, to preserve what? Many people alive. Yeah. There's a possibility of, his, of that lion dying off without, during that famine. Interesting stuff. Did he preserve them through the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities? Did they deserve it to be preserved? No, but he did anyway. What about the story of Esther? Pretty big story, huh? I think at that point, you know, which I think I told Shane, I think the reason why God's not mentioned is because they were so hard and, and God wasn't part of the picture anymore. But that's just my observation. That's just a, a thought. But did God take care of the, the Jews at the end of that era? Yeah, he took care of them. So you see that storyline. You could appeal to many more passages, the Psalms all over the place, about how God preserved his people all throughout the Old Testament. And then New Testament comes around, he's going to let them go, right? No. There is a partial hardening, though. There is a partial hardening. Okay, you do see that. So that's where you get to Romans 11. And Paul asks, 
So, I say then, he's, he was like, Chuck, he asked a question. No, I, I put it so there. But uh, I say then, I say then, did, uh, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Yes, they stumbled to fall. No, he said, may it never be. May it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, so Israel transgressing, if that's riches for the world and in the inclusion of so many Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But what? And you keep reading there. And I already lost my place. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Again, talking about uh, uh, someone distinct from Israel's, Israelites. And as much as then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. If, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay, so he's got a plan still. He's got a plan. They didn't stumble to fall completely. Okay, there is a partial hardening though. And then reading on, we already we stopped at verse 25 that Bob read for us earlier. If you keep reading in verse 26, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. This is verse 25, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. We're not going to debate exactly who the all Israel are, because that's a big, humongous debate, but I think it's talking about a ton of Israelites, national Israelites, okay? They'll be saved, just as written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable, however you want to say that. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. Again, even this, just by implication, are you seeing any kind of national distinction? You know, you... There, you, you are seeing a distinction. Um, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God will show up all, shut up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. So yeah, I think God's got a plan for national Israel. How it works out is how, you, you know, I would go to Ephesians 2 and work on that. Because we were strangers to the covenants of the promise. What covenants? I don't expect to answer that right now, but that's, that's your take-home question. We were strangers to the covenants of the promise. Fast forward into verse 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. You were strangers to the covenants of the promise. You're not strangers anymore. What are the covenants of the promise? That would be your take-home question. And that, if you answer that, you'll get your question about who's going to be in the end times doing what, where, in terms of land and that kind of thing. Okay. That's going to be the hard, that's the hard thing we all have to work through. If you already figured it out, let me know, and I'll be happy that you have figured it out. But that's the hard part, in my opinion. How, in what ways do we participate in the covenants of the promise? Do you understand that question? That's what Ephesians 2 says, we're no longer strangers to that. So what, in what way is the church currently participating and or sharing with those covenants of the promise? That's a huge question, okay? And that's going to probably throw you into a particular view at that point, okay? Pretty much what we've done today is not too controversial, like we said. Most of it's been pretty straightforward. A couple of things that people would, would uh, quarrel over. 
But when it comes to the end times and who's going to be where, will there still will there be a reestablishment of the land? Who's going to be in it? That's going to that's Ephesians two is a huge discussion there. So that's why that's where I would study that this week. Okay, Vlock does a good job bringing talking about that too. So I'd again recommend using him. But we got to go. We don't have time for that today. But just to recap, not to recapitulate, but to recap, uh, we can see from the very beginning Yahweh wanted to save Gentiles. Then throughout the course of history, national Israel, they blew it, okay? But Israel's failure opened the door for numerous Gentiles to be saved, even up to our present day. The Bible reveals two key distinctions. The church and Israel have different starting points, and the terms church and Israel don't, are never equated with as the same thing. They have national distinctions. These distinctions do not conflict with the unity, however, that believing Jews and believing Gentiles are experiencing now. It doesn't conflict with those two things, okay? That the fact that there are distinct nationally, okay? They still have unity in the church. So even though the people of Israel have proven overall very rebellious, God hasn't let them go. And that goes back to salvation, doesn't it? If God let Israel go, do we have much hope? Because because we're pretty rosy too, aren't we, and special? Mm. I haven't a good. I haven't heard a good explanation. I bet you Tim's heard a good explanation of that. You know how they deal with that? What's that? Oh, I do have an illustration. Yeah, someone's given. Yeah. I do have a, a quote, or it's not a direct quote, but a story. A guy said, a non-millennial said, uh, he said, uh, so you're going to start college, and your dad promises you a set of wheels to start you in college. You say, okay. And this whole time you're thinking it's a bike. And you bear with me for a moment. <laughs> time comes, you go out to the driveway day, your dad says, hey, I got you your set of wheels. You go out there and it's a Ferrari. Okay, just bear with me for a second, or bear with this guy who says this. So he says that's what happened. He says he promised these things to Israel, but then it turned out to be a whole lot better than what he promised. But I like the way Vlock, he, he countered that, because I don't think it's a very good analogy. Because he said it'd be like, if you were reading the Bible the way it should be, he said, if you had to take that analogy, it would be more like, okay, you get promised the set of wheels, but instead, time for college comes, your dad says, hey, I've adopted this other kid. I'm giving him a Ferrari because you've been disobedient, and uh, you're done. Sorry, I'm going to send you out. That would be the more... <laughs> so, yeah, I haven't heard a good explanation. I haven't heard a good explanation of that. I've not heard a good one. All right, I, I've given you all I've got, I promise. Um, it's been really hard for me working through this. Um, so is that something I want to study more is Ephesians 2.